Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and also down the line from southwestern China, we have Ben Bland. This week, we'll be looking at the latest developments in the Chinese banking industry as non-performing loans expand. We'll also look at investment banking on a global basis amid a new landscape there. And finally, over to Portugal, where there are fresh developments in the takeover battle for Novo Banco. Over to China, though. Ben, you join us from southwestern China. You're on the road there, but you wrote a very interesting piece about the developments in the Chinese non-performing loan segment, where all the big banks really have seen their NPLs go up quite dramatically in recent months. Yeah, that's correct. The big four Chinese state-owned banks reported their interim results over the last few days. And there was uh, around a 30% increase in non-performing loans across the gamut. But you've got to remember that these are four of the world's biggest banks. So the absolute amount increase in non-performing loans is huge. The non-performing loan ratios are still relatively low compared to what you might expect, given what people have been hearing about the slowdown and debt burden in China. We're talking a range of maybe 1.4% to 1.8% for China's biggest banks, but there has been a big jump. And as always in China, the question is, how much do these official statistics really tell us the truth about what's going on? And the answer is, according to most banking analysts who are looking at China, they believe that non-forming loans and bad debts are running at a much higher rate than these official state-sanctioned figures show. And obviously there's presumably going to be worse to come as a result of ongoing instability in Chinese markets. Indeed. I think everyone, including the the Chinese government and the state-owned banks, admit that things are only going to get tougher. Profits at the banks were flat. Their bad debts are up. And even ICBC, which is China and the world's biggest bank by assets, warned in its interim results that the risks of illegal fundraising and financial frauds are spreading to the banking system as companies and financial institutions, both legitimate and shadow banks, try to manage their bad debts and try and prevent them from appearing in the real numbers and try and prevent businesses from going under and people losing their jobs. The fear is that all sorts of scandals will be brought to the surface in addition to a fear of further defaults by large state-owned companies. Not a happy outlook then for investors, given that, as you say, these banks are all state-owned, but they all are listed banks as well. Minority shareholdings are listed. What is the kind of outlook for investors in your opinion? I mean, is this a segment that attracts or should attract mainstream Western investment? Well, as always, equity investors are going to look at the story from a different perspective of those who are looking to see what's going on in the Chinese economy as a whole. And, and the question there is always going to be value. So profits are down flat, basically. 
and bad debts are up, the outlook is worsening. But of course, as always, you have your sell-side analysts who are starting to say that you know, now these banks are starting to look fairly or reasonably valued. And for people wanting you know, a play on China going forward, obviously, the huge states controlled, but you know, Hong Kong-listed banks are, are a big way to get in, into the market. But I think many people would be extremely cautious at the moment, given the worsening outlook for the Chinese economy as a whole and these concerns about rising bad debts. You know, it'd have to be a brave investor to be keen to go into the Chinese banks now, I think. Strong stomachs required, definitely. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Let's move on to our second story of the day and a look back really at the changing landscape of the investment banking industry. Laura, you produced a couple of pieces in the last few days, one a very big number-crunching exercise of that whole landscape, the other pointing out really the rebound in investment banking generally that we've seen with that area, which you know was written off by many post-crisis and, and post-regulatory change as being an unprofitable area, now coming back to, in many cases, dominate the profit performance of some of the big universal banks. What did you find in your research? Yeah, I mean, there's been some really interesting trends taking place in the last eight years or so since the global financial crisis hit. One of the kind of big picture findings was that investment banking is making up a smaller and smaller percentage of the revenue of the 10 biggest global banks you have investment banking units. So before the crisis, six of those would have been getting more than half of their revenue from their broad investment banks. And by their broad investment banks, we mean everything which sits in their investment banking division. So it also includes some of the markets and security activity that they do and other things besides the kind of traditional investment banking area of just giving advice and of M&A and deal making. So of those banks, before the crisis, six of the 10 were making most of their revenue from these broader investment banks, and now only two of the 10 are. So we have seen a real shift in terms of the investment bank's importance within the overall group. And that's partly been driven by the wave of regulation which we had, which made it more and more expensive to do particular investment banking activities. Now, at the same time, One of the more interesting trends to emerge in the recent quarters has been that actually the investment banks which have been left have become better earners. So we looked at the banks and we found that actually in almost all of those 10 banks cases, the investment banks claim to have a return on equity or a return on allocated capital, which is higher than the overall parent group. Now, there are some quirks in that. I mean, in the case of some banks, What they did after the crisis was they put a lot of their bad investment banking activities into these other units that they had their internal bad banks and non-core. So obviously, if you take out all of the bad stuff, then the earnings power of what's left is going to be good. But there does seem to be a genuine rebound in the earnings power here. Part of it is because they've moved away from the capital intensive activities. That means that they're putting less equity into their investment bank. And as you put in less equity, you are going to have a higher return on equity. There's also an increasing trend where prior to the crisis, being big was the focus of lots of banks. They were more interested in basically growing their top line revenue than they were on their earnings. We've seen banks really now have been becoming a lot more earnings focused. That's having an impact on the kind of business which they do. They're being more and more selective in that they are far less willing than they were pre-crisis to do deals purely to boost the top line and to move up the league tables. And they're taking a far more earnings focused approach which is also helpful in terms of their profitability. And one small point on the return on equity metric, as you say, it's for many investment banking divisions, it's looking better than the parent group. 
How much can we trust those figures, given that they are internal allocations of capital? Certainly pre-crisis, there was a lot of massaging, I think, of numbers, it's fair to say, in certain groups. I think it's fair to say that it would be very difficult to compare return on equity from different investment banking units with each other because they do allocate capital differently. They do also allocate expenses differently. So it's difficult to compare across banks. But if you see a difference where you have an investment banking unit having a return on equity or a return on capital of, say, 18-19% and you have the parent company having a return on equity of 10 it's fair to assume that even if you were to strip out those kind of differences, which maybe account for a swing of like 5-6%, if you see a big difference between the earnings power of the investment bank and of the overall group, I think it's safe to say that the investment banking units have been more profitable on an underlying basis, but probably the gap isn't as big as some of the figures would actually suggest. And that's because of those kind of internal factors that you yeah. mentioned. Right. Martin, you wanted to come in? Yeah, just pointing out that, as you said, some of this comes down to how they allocate costs within the group. But also sceptics would point to the fact that whilst investment banks certainly have rebounded in terms of their profitability, you've got to look at it through the cycle. I think that investment banks were responsible for much of the massive losses that the world's biggest banks suffered during the financial crisis. So through the cycle, returns are what I think some of the you know the senior management are looking at when they're assessing where to allocate capital, not just the latest quarter. And also those returns are higher than group returns, but they're not back to the kind of 20-30% return on equities that we saw from investment banks before the crisis. And returns of retail banks, which in the universal banking model is the other half of the equation, are very low at the moment because of the incredibly low interest rates. And as soon as interest rates start to go back up, who knows when that'll be, then you can expect the returns of retail banks to improve and perhaps catch back up with the investment banks. Good point. Let me stay with you, Martin, for our final item. In Portugal, we have the, I talked about a battle for control of Nova Bank. It's not really a battle. It's kind of a desperate search for someone to buy it, I think. The exclusive talks were ongoing for the past few weeks with Anbang, the Chinese institution. They have fallen apart and we're left with, well, we don't know what we're left with. There were a couple of other people in talks prior to those exclusive talks. Where do you think this is going to end up, Martin? Let's just recap here. Novo Banco is the good bank that was carved out of Banco Espirito Santo, which at the time was Portugal's biggest bank, after it collapsed last year amid a scandal that shook the country. All of its bad assets were put into a bad bank, and then the remaining good assets were put into Novo Banco. Sales process was started. The government's hoping to complete the sale in time for the election in October. And they've weeded out many of the bidders, left with three bidders, we think, although this has never been officially confirmed. Two Chinese groups, both insurance-based groups, Anbang and Fosun International. And another bidder is the US private equity group, Apollo, Apollo Global Management. And what's happened today is an agreement with the leading bidder in terms of the price offered, Anbang, have collapsed. And the Portuguese central bank, which is the one running the auction has said that they're turning now to the next bidder. We don't know who that is, but everybody thinks it's Apollo, that they're the next highest bidder and that Fosun has very much fallen out of favour. Now, this is very complicated in terms of the auction because it's not just about the number being offered, you know, the highest bidder winning. There are a lot of conditionality attached to all of the offers. Uh, they want to leave 
liability for legal action. And there is a lot of legal action because of the way the bank split and because of the scandal around the way that the bank collapsed. So there's a lot of lawsuits flying around and the buyers of, of Nova Bank will want to leave liability for that with the central bank or with the bailout mechanism in Portugal. There's also a stress test going on. The European Central Bank has conducted a stress test on Nova Banco, which was excluded from last year's Europe-wide stress test process because it was collapsing. And they've had a catch-up stress test this year, which is expected to reveal a large shortfall and require whoever buys it to put in an extra billion or two of capital. So there's conditionality around that. Some of the bidders have, I'm told, attempted to put a cap on how much extra capital they'll put in and anything above that, asking the Central Bank of Portugal to meet that deficit. So basically, you know, this is a very complicated process highly politically sensitive and an election coming up. The government there seems to want to get a deal done. But the big problem they've got is if they are forced to accept a bid that is well below the 4.9 billion euro value put on the bank when it was bailed out, then those losses could fall on the other banks who own this bailout mechanism and would be forced to repay the loan that was made by the government any shortfall on that loan. So, you know, we really could see some further pain inflicted on the other Portuguese banks if the government is forced to accept a very low offer. Now, US private equity groups like Apollo are not renowned for offering top dollar for any assets. And Apollo in particular is a distressed debt house by history and by culture. So they are looking for bargain basement distressed assets and they're used to paying the very lowest price. And so if they do the deal, you know, you can assume that they're not paying top dollar for this. So I think this is a very risky process that could collapse. Laura Martin's point there that the risk of collapse puts pressure on the other banks that are operating in Portugal because they might need to fund the bailout. Does that mean they might be more likely to come out and bid themselves? Well, the other banks would have taken part earlier on in the process. And I think certainly some of them in the first round put in bids, but they came in far, far below. I think the ownership structure is going to be a really interesting case. I mean, I was turning this over with some bankers from other banks last week and we couldn't find a single case within the EU where there is a large systemically important retail bank owned by somebody from outside the EU. So if this were to go to either of the other two bidders who were still on the shortlist, you would have a major policy departure. So from that sense, it would be a lot safer simply to have it go to the other banks and to have some kind of a bid from one of the other banks. Now, you would end up with a very large bank, and that is the problem. I mean, the other two banks are actually quite large as it is. But I think certainly there would be a lot less risk on the regulatory side if you had a bidder who was actually already in the eurozone, ideally, because there just wouldn't be as much risk in terms of licensing and the policy risk. Okay. Uh, Final word from you, Martin. Final word. Just going back to where we started, which was in the Chinese banks and the, the Asian markets. Volatility we've seen for the past month, I think that's having a bearing on this auction process because, uh, you know, I'm hearing it's just rumours, but we're hearing that the political mood and the regulatory mood in Europe has turned against some of these Chinese bidders. And also the other question is whether the Chinese bidders themselves, their own appetite for putting capital to work has been diminished or their ability to put capital to work in Europe, buying some of these financial assets that they've been snapping up left, right and centre has been diminished by the losses suffered by investors in the Chinese markets themselves. So have we reached the limits of regulated 
Peter's acceptance of little-known Chinese bidders coming in and buying up insurance companies and potentially banks. We'll be drawing the line at systemically important retail banks and saying, actually, we're not prepared to go that far. And are the Chinese groups themselves, are they stepping back after the markets have fallen so sharply? It's a very interesting test case, and we'll come back to it, I'm sure. That's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio and also Ben Bland from China. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking, including that fascinating study of investment banking by Laura. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's currencies correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday.